All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want more information on the company that I'm in charge of, visit TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. My co-host tonight is Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. You can find more about Muskie Mayhem Tackle at MuskieMayhemTackle.com. And our guest tonight is Jeff Vandermortel with WDH Guide Service out of northern Wisconsin. Thanks for coming on tonight, Jeff. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really good, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem, Jeff. It's it's good to have you on. Hey, Brad, I got to pick on Carrie. What's the story? Why uh, we need we need her here? She has fans. They expect <laughs> her to be on. Where is she? I don't disagree. Um, I don't know what she's doing tonight. Honestly, she uh, she's a little bit. She caught a nice fish yesterday, and I think she's way tired. I mean, of all of us, she's the only one that has specifically been mentioned in fan mail. So this is. You just got to tell her. She better get her butt back on this thing. This is getting out of hand. I can't argue with Jeff. I don't know. We'll see what happens here. I'll beat her up a little tomorrow. Well, it sounds like Carrie caught a nice fish. So, Jeff, uh, I saw a Facebook pic today. Let's talk about this. That thing was a giant. Yeah, it was a girthy fish, man. Topped out upper 40s, not quite 50. Um, never will be 50. I'm sure I wouldn't think, but, uh, yeah, the, the girth on it was certainly the most impressive and the size of the head on that fish. Um, really, really big classic Northern Wisconsin fish though, man, carried that weight all the way through to the back and what a great fish. I, I actually lost that fish. I had, I had two real big ones that I lost this year. Um, lost a lot of nice fish. A lot of those fish that you can, you know, kind of peg as four footers, but you know, by us, you start getting up much bigger than that 49, 50 or anything slightly over 50. That's that's pretty pretty large lengthwise by us. They carry that weight, as I said. But for length, our, our fish much more than that. They don't get there. And that's that top end. And man, that uh, I lost that one. And I in about July, I think it was July 18th, somewhere around there, uh, late July. And after I lost it, it got off. I fought all the way to the boat, and that fish came up like I'd lost the fish. It choked on a, a big Medusa. It, I had it at the boat. I could see it doing head shakes back and forth. And the bait was completely inside the mouth of the fish and lodged in there. And it just popped free, you know, as they were watching it, just head shaking, head shaking as it got to the boat. And I couldn't do anything with it. It just came out. And I was sitting there. You can see I have a video of it. I'm sitting there sharpening hooks and just kind of getting my bait back together. And all of a sudden, I heard a splash and I kind of look up on one side of the boat that was out of frame. And then I heard another splash. And here's the same fish coming back up. And it's just slightly in frame. If you actually look at that post, you can see it on there. Um, and, uh, it's still trying to shake the invisible bait that it still thinks is inside of it, man. That thing was so keyed up. Um, and it was actually kind of funny. It's actually between a guide trip and league that I went out and I lost that fish. Cause I knew we were going to miss, you know, moon was right then storms were right then. We were going to miss that for league, which was at four o'clock. And I, I hooked that fish around three o'clock on the 18th and snuck out before my partner was able to meet up with me. But anyway, that's the long and the short on that fish, but pretty cool fish. Awesome girth. I did not girth it, but it was a very heavy fish. Um, just put it right back. I didn't have much time to fish and was kind of in a rush out there anyway. Probably should have girthed that one I normally do, but a nice fish. All around a nice fish. Yeah, no doubt. And a cool story. Cool story. So, Jeff, typically we start out with a background. Why don't you start out with um, your background, but also mention where people can get in touch with you or find out about you. Um, like if they wanted to see that fish, where would they go? Typically, I, I saw it on Facebook where you want to list the different pages and whatever they can get in touch with you. And then why don't you talk about kind of what, what got us started in musky fishing? Yeah, you can find me um, for contact information. You can find me um, probably the easiest is social media. I do have a website as well. It is painfully out of date, and I apologize for that. I will be rebuilding. I have to rebuild both of my websites this winter. Um, uh, unfortunately, those are not up to date. But anyway, I, all my stuff is current on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me on Facebook under either my name, Jeff Van Remortal or Jeff Van Remortal dash WDH guide service, um, which I've got, you know, a couple thousand unresponded to friend requests. <laughs> I have to um, move to that public figure type page. So you can find me on either or. Um, and if I haven't responded to a request, I apologize for that, but there is a limit. So anyway, you can find me in any of those places and on the story. Sometimes we'll put that stuff on there too. Some of the footage from that is actually on the story for that. If you click and watch that on either either platform it's kind of two twofold for you too jeff isn't it in the sense that um you're not only doing the musky guiding you're also doing a bunch of other species as well as um the waterfall side too 
Yeah, absolutely. I uh, my, my two main websites are wisconsinmuskyfishingguide.com and wisconsinduckhunts.com. And uh, as you mentioned, yes, I do a guide for a variety of things. Uh, muskies are my primary focus from opener on the, which up by us in northern Wisconsin is the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. Um, we'll still run a few walleye trips in that uh, through late May and into early June, but primary focus is muskies from then until duck season. I do run a handful of guide trips for ducks in northern Wisconsin from late September, which is our opener here. Um, and then I moved down to Green Bay in mid to late October, depending on how my bookings fall. And I run trips for divers and sea ducks on Green Bay and Lake Michigan full-time down there until season closed in early December. And after that, it's time to start ice fishing right away. So season closes for ducks, always the first Sunday of December for us here in Wisconsin in the Southern zone. And then, uh, like I said, right onto the ice for ice fishing. And then it shows and seminars. I get to see all you guys there, of course, making the rounds for all that good stuff. And then before you know it, it's mid-March time for some steelhead. And uh, we get some big browns too that time of year, steelhead and browns from mid-March through about the third week of April. And then it's right back up north for more walleyes and panfish and, and other stuff there for the opener for Saturday of May. And then right back to muskies. Well, that sounds like you don't get a whole lot of time off then, Jeff. <laughs> I used to have some time, some slow time, but not anymore. Um, which, like I said, not a complaint by any means. I absolutely love it. Love the variety that goes along with it. I think uh, along with keeping me interested and, and uh, you know, things never quite getting stale because you have that variety. It also, I think, makes you more well-rounded outdoorsman. And uh, even just targeting those different types of species, you know, whether it be, you know, walleyes in the winter or, you know, panfish in the, in the, in their, their transitory time in the pre-spawn or, or, you know, walleyes in the spring or steelhead in the spring, they all have different things to teach you. And they definitely, definitely help. It def there's definitely a lot of uh, carryover from species to species. So Jeff, you know, with a young family, like you have, um, how, how do you figure out how to manage your time? I know that can be really a challenge because I've, I've had to do that as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think the biggest challenge there or the biggest or the biggest advantage I have, I should say, is my my wife, who is a saint. <laughs> um, I am on the road a fair amount for my line of work. And, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to travel for work. Well, it's not uh, it's not anything, you know, unusual, I guess. But in, when you have a, a non-traditional job like I have, there definitely are some other challenges. Time management, you know, I schedule some days off for family. Um, we just took the kids to the zoo the other day and stuff like that. You know, we always try to make time for that over the summer. My wife's a teacher, so she has summers off and she does uh, a lot of the child care and stuff, of course, over the summer. So we're able to to mix in stuff like that. And it's nice for me, too, if I'm able to swing home between guide trips and that, you know, during the summer when they are around. Um, so that kind of works out, too. That's nice that way. But, you know, we find a way. But, yeah, definitely making time for the family and spending time with the kids aside from the times when I'm on the road where we still try to make it. I stay, stay with some family. I'm down in green Bay there. And then, um, you know, they get to have a little grandma, grandpa time there too. When the kids come down to visit and they've got Thanksgiving holiday and stuff there. So it all kind of falls together in a semi conveniently inconvenient way, but, uh, you know, we make it through and man, they're growing fast. Ollie is Oliver, my son, he's the youngest, he's 15 months. And my daughter Gwen just turned three on August 5th. Well, it goes quick. There's no doubt about that. Right, Jeff? Oh, yeah. 13, <laughs> 13, 11, 8, and 5. I'm sure the days don't seem that far away of being where I am now to where you guys are now and that. And man, that's, it, it just, it's unbelievable how fast it goes. Honestly, it's un, it's, it is impossible to tell you how quickly it goes. Like from your <laughs> daughter being three right now to where my daughter's being 13. I mean, I remember all that time and man, it just goes so, it goes so unbelievably quick. So you, you really just gotta, you really just gotta enjoy it. And you know, some of it, you know how it is. Uh, any of us know how it is with younger children. There's times where it tests your patience, but then, um, you just still have to enjoy those moments because they're gone in an instant. Even my little guy, Zach, he's five. And I mean, I remember, uh, I remember when he was born cause we have, you know, we had some family issues. We were dealing with health issues with my wife and, um, just like it's been five years since that's all been past us already and Zach's five and it's just like I said it seemed like just yesterday that all that stuff happened yeah man it's crazy but at the same time you know as the older they get and the quicker they get older the more you get a chance to introduce them to the things you like too which I'm really looking forward to that next chapter uh we had actually been pulling up some of my GoPro stuff today I, I had my GoPro with me when we went out for 
took her out her fishing her first time there and she was watching herself fishing and she just couldn't <laughs> they got home right as i was finishing up pulling through all my footage and cleaning my stuff off and she was just let's go fishing in the morning let's go fishing in the morning so yeah man it's oh that's crazy yeah that part's pretty darn fun too yeah build the hunger build the hunger you know yeah i'm hoping so yeah i mean she she hasn't needed that much encouragement man hopefully it sticks we'll see but i won't force either of them into anything man if they want to go they'll have every opportunity in the world to get out and do it and i like i said i hope that they at least at least understand it and like to do it a little bit they don't have to be crazy about it like i am but i think so they both love to be outside love playing in the woods in our backyard being out there and being in the boat so see how it goes that's good stuff, Jeff. How did how you know? Speaking of that, how did you get involved in this whole racket? You know, so my dad was definitely the one that got me into fishing. He's definitely the one that that introduced me to the sport. You know, catching perch and bluegills and all that stuff. I, I grew up in Green Bay, and we vacationed up here in the Vilas County area, mostly in the Eagle River area, uh, a little bit more so over that way. Um, we actually were on a small lake uh, over there north of town called Deerskin Lake. That's where we rented a place from an extended family that it used to be a resort, but they just, you know, the family would take a week here, a week there, and they rented out to some of their other friends or something, like um, just because they had multiple cabins on the property. And yeah, it was a really, uh, man, I can't tell you how much I looked forward to that as a kid being in school, you know, all the way from first second grade onward there and we always did a family trip up and that's that's really i think where everything grew for me the most i mean we always fished back home and went out in the bay and fished in the you know i'd ride my bike around town there and go to uh, walleyes down at the fox you know during the run there and catch carp or wherever else in the summer and did a lot of that stuff too but up here is definitely what what sparked my interest in fishing the most i would say that they kept it held the most consistently sure uh, yeah, no, and then, you know, kind of like we all do, we start off with panfish and maybe bass here or there and then catching what you can, casting baits. You want to cast baits like your dad does, you know, throwing a Rapala or, uh, you know, Meps or what have you. And then all of a sudden you catch your first muskie on accident and that, those things are pretty cool. And then all that's a pretty natural transition, I think. And I definitely was was one that followed that pattern, no doubt about it. Can you uh, can you share about what age? when you, you transition into the musky side more so yeah yeah for sure i so i caught my first one on accident with my dad it was actually on the eagle river chain i was 10 years old i was on a number two meps and it was right between the points where the there's the the indian where the i think it's called the omen was filmed there the movie the omen they filmed it there and then there's an eagle on the other point right in the narrows on catfish lake there's the narrows there. It was right off one of the off the it was kind of right between there's a big hole in between them it was right off the point with the there's a is or was an Indian statue on it, and then the other one adjacent had the eagle. And we caught it off the Indian one there. But it's a 29 and a half incher. And uh, yeah, oh man, I was proud. And the old three bencher, 16 foot, you know, that light green mural craft, and the 25 horse Merc on it. And it was my dad and my uncle's boat that they shared. And out there with my dad and myself and a family friend of ours, Joe Vandenbush. And still around and fishing he was a good buddy of my uncle's that he worked with and always one of the regulars on our annual trip up north and from there i ended up catching another one out of the fox river um the next year and it was like 96 95 96 i caught one on accident over there and that was a bigger fish about 40 incher and that one you know that one really got me going too and then after that it was just kind of this always i mean because we always cast it for pike and stuff from a pretty young age you know just throwing out what, what we could and again a few more of those incidental catches over the years and before you know it i was 14 15 and plugging away i can remember one day we were out on uh kentuck lake back in its heyday there back in or when it was really getting popular this would have been about yeah late 90s i'd say um and uh late night yeah oh Maybe before, yeah, about that, late 90s, I guess. And, uh, yeah, we ended up hooking, we hooked, hooked 10 and landed seven. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of the day it, it all clicked for me, all on number five red and white maps. <laughs> we had people coming over to us left and right asking, what are you guys throwing? You know, like there's, there's a bunch of boats out fishing, and they just they just wanted small blades that day. And quite honestly, that's a, that's a thing I've taken with me through my whole career, downsizing at times when, it was one of those days where you wouldn't have really, wouldn't have really expected it to be a downsizer kind of day. You know, looking at it, knowing what I know now, this would have been June. It would have been I don't know, first or second week of June, which is classic time is you know for small bucktails and that. But um, 
you know, there was storm after storm coming through. We put our rain gear on and took it off probably three, four times that day. And it was like before each one of those waves of storms, those fish would turn on and we'd get a couple. And we saw, I don't know how many fish that day. There were muskies just seemed like they were just everywhere. But uh, for the most part, we didn't really see anybody else catching any and bumped into, I think it was actually Ranger Rick, if I remember right. And I remember, it, I'm pretty sure that's who my dad said it was when we were, you know, this was again a long time ago. But he had come over and asked and they had caught a 43 that day or whatever, but he saw his boat two in a row and just kind of, hey, what are you guys, you know, doing over there? And it was just, like I said, just a very, very fond memory. And that was definitely one of the more formative times on the water. And I was, you know, pictures of it. I should dig those up somewhere. They're down in the box in the basement, but. I was about 14 at the time, 13 or 14 at the time. And I say, I'd say that was the time where I really started to focus on muskies. That's after that, we all you know, went out and bought better muskie gear and kind of figured this was going to be something we were going to do a little bit more of. And from that, it transitioned into just that, did a lot more of that, a lot of top water after dark, you know, out of a rowboat and stuff back in the day. And, you know, really, uh, really blossomed from there. I've, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but I've met your dad a couple times now. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have met my dad. <laughs> yeah. And he's a cool guy. Um, he's a talkative guy. He loves to go talk to people. Yeah, he's a real nice fellow. And he loves to talk about you, which is, is really cool. <laughs> oh, I've heard, yeah. <laughs> so, I've met him at the Fleet Farm Show a couple, uh, the last two or three springs now. So, oh, boy. Yeah. It's always good, man. I, I like seeing him, and he, we have a good time when we hook up there. So. Oh yeah, man. He's always all smiles, especially if you're talking about fishing or hunting, man. He's a, uh, he's a good guy, but no doubt. So Jeff, you and I fished together this, uh, this summer, we've got some we videos did. coming up. We put out a few videos on our YouTube channel. And the one thing, the one thing I would like to know, and I'm sure a lot of listeners want to know is the vast knowledge that you have of many different lakes. There's obviously a whole bunch for you to choose from up North. And I, I guess what I want to know is let's just kind of talk about how you learn, how you went about the process of learning all that water. What, you know, what did you, what did you do? Was it just lots of time on the water? How did you determine what would be productive? Um, I know there's a lot of questions there. Why don't you just kind of talk to us about the beginning? Like, cause like I said, your knowledge of Northern Wisconsin waters, especially in the Oneida and Vilas County area is pretty unbelievable for, just from the fact that you can, you know, you know, stained water, clear water, you know, different bodies of water, big ones, small ones. Let's just talk about how you, how you gained all that knowledge. You know, there's no shortcut for time in the water, man. I mean, I, I really did, you know, before I was guiding, you know, and, and just fishing for fun and even into well into when I first started guiding part-time, you know, I was, a, I was a forester. Um, I worked, uh, I worked for, I, I owned a sub kind of consulting forestry business that allowed me to set my own hours. I took over the business that I worked for a guy all through college and that afforded me the time to, you know, go out and fish and kind of set my own schedule, at least to a point anyway. Um, as long as I got all the other stuff done, I could kind of go play. And and I just spent a, a ridiculous amount of time on the water, man. I, I, there's a lot to, a lot to be said about, you know, and, and I mean, tournaments and stuff too, are some pretty big, pretty big curve breakers too, going and fishing some tournaments against guys that, you know, are way better than you, you know, and guys like, you know, like your Mark Lejeskis and Neil Barnett and guys that, you know, they, they know the area, they grew up here, they fished it for a long time, but to see that as like somebody fresh out of college and go fish and like, I knew I knew how to catch muskies, but at the same time, like those guys knew a lot more. And, and if not, if not so much more about muskies, more about this area, especially though, you know what I mean? Like they know, like they're again, very well-versed anglers. Anyway, just to fish against somebody like that, being a field like that. And, and there's a number of other people who all fit that, fit that mold for sure. But to go fish in those type of competitive fields. And, you know, even when you had your good days, somebody else did better, or, you know, you had a really good day and other people didn't do anything or you didn't catch anything and you'd swear there wasn't a muskie in the lake and somebody else pounded, you know, two or four or whatever, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to learn that really opens your eyes to the fact that there's always hungry fish in the system. That's probably one of the most important lessons I took away from that because no matter how bad of a day you had or how good of a day you had, there's always other fish able to be caught. Um, you know, the next focus were knowing that there's catchable fish on any given day, no matter how bad the conditions are, even whether it's one or a hundred in a system, it, knowing what the weather and the moon is doing at that time is always something that you want to consider too. And you see that reflected in, you know, it's been talked about to death. It's kind of even hate to mention it, but it's still a factor because it is a daily day, a thing and it's a weekly thing. And, and all that stuff sets itself up to influence your decision as to where you should go. Um, 
I of course have the distinct advantage of being out almost every day, if not every day, uh, and sometimes multiple times a day. So you can stay on top of what's going on pretty well. I mean, Jeff, when you and I fished together, it was, I think, a pretty good example of time when the bite was definitely not good. I mean, we had so much action. You know, we moved fish. We had a lot of fish up and moving. Everywhere we went, we seemed to find fish, but they weren't quite committal until we found, we put it together and we found, you know, it was just kind of crossing things off the list. Okay, these fish are moving, but they aren't quite ready. These fish are moving, but they aren't quite ready. You get those little changes throughout the seasonal time. And then you find a lake where the thing, where everything's lined up. And we made quick work of them and caught a couple of really nice fish uh, and had action from others. So I know I'm kind of all over the place in this, but it's such a big subject that it's really hard to break it all down in that way. But anyway, the long and the short of it is a lot of time in the water, fishing tournaments to get yourself up to speed and, and know that there's other ways to fish. Again, even then, you know, back 2009, you know, 2000, I guess 2009, 2010. Even earlier than that, I mean, a lot of this stuff that's out right now, you know, double cowgirl included, was still pretty much in its infancy. I mean, a lot of that stuff, you know, big rubber, big blades, it, it wasn't your workaday knowledge that every musky angler had at the time. It was all very new, all very much, you know, there's a lot of lakes up here that hadn't seen that yet. Um, the one advantage we do have in northern Wisconsin, and that is one thing I found pretty early on, too, is that. Whereas a lake like, say, uh, you know, the Bradstone Water of Miltona, I don't fish it, I don't know it a lot, but say the double cowgirl, that's ground zero, Miltona. You're out there testing your product, local, you're, you guide, you catch a lot of fish, you're out there catching a lot of fish in that product. Those fish in that system are going to probably be exposed to it and conditioned more quickly than, you know, places where that bait doesn't catch on for another couple months or another couple years or whatever, you know, nowadays information spreads so fast that that's almost impossible to repeat the way that things happened back then. But up here, we've got so many lakes that are all separate populations of muskies that you could very well have some lake where they have never seen a a Lake X Dr. Evil or a Medusa or a bulldog or a double cowgirl throughout that early part. And that was key I think one for teaching me how fish relate when you have a bait that can catch fish just because it's a great bait. Like it, I think we've all kind of remember how stuff was with, with certain baits as they came out of the room, it just seemed like you could do no wrong. And if you could go and repeat that system after system, after system, after system, you can really figure out where those fish are. Even if you go back later, if you're smart enough to know, how those fish hold. And this is actually something where I'd take a page from the steelhead playbook where, you know, they're there. Like I'm looking at a hole in a river for them. I know that they're there. It's no different than muskies. And now we have the electronics to let us know they're there, but still in a weed situation, it can be kind of tough for muskies. But the bottom line is fish that are there, not always active going in and learning some of that stuff early on when you had baits that caught fish, you know, kind of where you could do no wrong. If, is that making sense? Where where I'm just trying to get that point across that you know that was one other thing where again it, it helped you. It opened your eyes to what was going on in the system even after that glory of that bait or that type of bite had faded. And then something new would come out, and you could go back and hit that same stuff, and boom, wow, oh hey, they were still there. They were there the whole time. Or if you're just there at a magic window and things open up, those fish didn't go anywhere. And that's the biggest thing too. You do have to have that confidence. Um, like I said, I feel like I'm all over the place on that, but you know. Well, I think I think your point, Jeff, is plain and simple. Uh, tournaments benefit is you might not be on the bite, but somebody else in that tournament's going to catch fish, and and it happens no countless, countless times. It happens um, to every angler always that has ever fished a tournament. I agree, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing, you know. It, 20 guys even if it's luck even if it's luck or just by sheer volume of casts that somebody sticks one it doesn't matter if you had been there at that time casting at that spot and if you could have figured out what would have brought you to that spot in the first place you'd have caught that fish or you know within reason of course but you know what i mean like a bite was had a fish was caught why weren't you the guy catching that fish somebody else had something else going on that you didn't you know but it but it might not only be the bait it might be uh, location. It might be sand, rocks, weeds. You know, oh, sure. Yeah, there's, absolutely. There's so yeah. many different, there's so many factors in this game. And, yes. you know, as anglers, I think everybody needs to understand that somebody somewhere is catching fish. And if you're not, you need to change things up. And I, I think that's the bottom line of what you're trying to say. Especially when it's bitey, especially when the fish are moving. You know what I mean? When it feels good and you're like, oh, man, we should be catching and we're not. 
you know, like that's, that's the worst feeling in the world. I don't get it very often anymore. I feel like not as often as, you know, but when it feels right and you're not on them, that's tough, but it's, again, it's a lesson learned. You're right. It, it can be anything from the structure and up here, it can be the lake choice in particular. Um, I, a really good story, kind of as an aside from, from one of our nights this year in league, uh, I fished in the St. Germain Muskie league. It's very laid back, really great group of guys. Um, a lot of them fish the other leagues in the area and stuff. Really, really great group of dudes. And we, so my partner was working over, my partner Ed was working over in one area there and we were going to be late to get on the lake. And I was like, well, we can fish any lake we want for league as long as it's public access. And as long as it's, you know, your fishing hours are four to nine, got to register your fish by 10. You have to whatever the designated bar is. It's very laid back, very relaxed. Picture for rules or a picture for, to turn in for, um, registration and that's all it is so you can fish anywhere you want which frees us up especially if we have busy schedules anyway long story short we we decided to go down there because he was working that down that way i'd been out there i don't know earlier in the week whatever and every time i went through a couple they had two different spots every time i went through it it's like you go through and see like two three fish didn't it eat but every time you go through it there's another one two three fish and they're all different so it's like man there's a lot of fish using those spots and he was down there we got out at like 4 45 something like that we got out a little bit late just as we were launching there's a boat coming off and they're like oh yeah we caught a 32 and i think they caught one other one or saw one other one or something it's like oh, okay so they're moving all right but this was a night where moon was at like 2 15 league starts at four weather is all great all day we pounded a bunch of fish with clients or i pounded a bunch of fish with clients that day i think we landed three or something that morning it's a great day of fishing and the weather's breaking up at two, three o'clock. Everything's looking wrong. You know, next moon's not till 11 or whatever after league hours. It doesn't look good on paper. It doesn't feel like it's going to be good on paper. We went out there. We had what is probably the best four hours of musky fishing I've had all year, year, at least comparable. We moved 16 or 17 fish, hooked eight, landed three. And a lot of them were coming in like Lake of the Woods style on a bucktail. Like they'd hit a bucktail, they're hitting, they're pounding Marvin's or their small blades. We had, we had some, we had some double, double showgirls going, but they wanted the one single blade bait. That's what they wanted that night when the bucktail bite was going. So they were coming in, screaming in on these baits, hitting them out on the cast, and then coming in. And I mean, it, they were on fire, long story short. Then the bucktail bite died down, then they wanted rubber, then they wanted suits. But the bottom line is we had bites and follows and hookups all four hours. We got back there to like leave me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a lot of fish caught tonight. And almost nobody caught anything or saw anything. There's a couple sports and that was it. And it's, it's not like these guys aren't good enough fishermen to catch fish. I mean, fish are moving like that. It was, it completely took me by surprise. I expected to see plenty of fish. I thought they'd come out, they'd look. I did not think we were going to do that well that night. And those fish, for whatever reason, that lake was on fire. And I went back the next morning just because I had to. I mean, you see that many fish, you know, there's that many fish using two small locations. and I think we caught a 35 incher and saw one. We had moon, good weather, everything looked nice again. And then we, we left after a couple hours, went to a different lake. The bottom line is up by us, it can sometimes it can just be a lake. And honestly, there's I have no idea why that lake was on fire that day. I have no idea. Aside from being on a place where I knew that there was a lot of fish, it just for whatever reason the switch flipped and they were just going going crazy. So Jeff, you t- you talk about you know right lake, right time. And let's kind of relate it back to you fishing all these different lakes that you have knowledge of. How did you, how did you know, how long did you have to fish a lake before you were like, yep, this one's on my list. This this one's on my list of fish lakes I need to hit again. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, so for like, so for knowing a lot of lakes and just spreading yourself out across an area, really as the more you do it, the more you start to realize, at least up here, that certain lakes are on certain wavelengths. Like there's certain lakes that are on and it's not necessarily that they're the same type of lake. You just kind of find Lake A is on and Lake B has been good. Lake C has been completely a dead sea. You know, I mean, just you'll find that over time and being out where when one lake is on another lake that may or may not be, they're usually similar. Like if it's big lakes are going, you know, I can't really think of a great example like that, but if like, okay, so like a big arb is hot, little arb is probably going to, they're similar in size, similar in depth, pretty similar in, in a lot of aspects, you know, that can be a thing. And they both get very green when the algae blooms. So you got like those green type of lakes and you've got other stuff. That's like your Eagle river chain type of stuff where it's like a flowage stained water, cabbage bite, good weeds, a lot of other good structure as well. But you know, it's, it's like a flowage river system. So you got like those type of lakes and then you've got the other lakes that are, 
it may be really shallow and don't turn over much or don't stratify much, but may not have a lot of other structure in them. And so there's kind of these shallower, more featureless bowls, whether they're deep or shallow bowls. And then you've got, you know, and, and it all kind of bases on one, the type of structure and depth and size of the lake, but also there's like a water clarity correlation there that certainly holds up. Like when the green lakes are going, sometimes the green lakes are going. When the brown lakes are going, the brown lakes are going. And there's a lot of variant variance to that, but that's a pretty good starting point for somebody that's trying to crack the code on a big area or you know for example when the big cisco lakes are going you know the monaco chain's going hot and heavy you know there's a good chance that something like a north twin might be going hot and heavy too even though it's a long ways away and i honestly i see the i see that correlation happen you know even when i see pictures pop up from the guys like steve or or, or scott or somebody over by hayward where they pop up and you can kind of tell by the coloration of the fish you know maybe what type of water they're on or if they got the you know cisco fatty build where it probably came out of something a little bit deeper clear with probably cisco as a forage base and it's like, oh, yeah, our lakes, those lakes are going over here, too, you know. Um, yeah, so so there's there's like lake lake types. That's one. I guess that's one way to say it. Aside from getting into specifics about like an individual lake where you found that, oh, you know, in that. But that varies so much that that could be that, that doesn't really apply. If you're trying to crack the system as a whole, though, uh, that's a good place to start. Kind of figure out what lakes and of course, you want to have, you know, I'm talking about lakes I'll have, you know, they're well known for muskies. I'm not trying to figure out the necessarily the one lake that has a population of six muskies in it that have never seen a bait. Like, I don't care about that. I, I, I tried that game and I found some cool stuff doing it. But honestly, you're better off to stick with some of the more popular waters simply because there's more fish there. They've got that reputation for a reason. And even by, you know, modern day standards, the pressure our fish get up here, they are a lot smarter than I think you would maybe give them credit for, but it's not like it's Madison chain or somewhere that's much more closer to a population center where those fish might see a lot more pressure, a lot more of the time. Um, so being on a good lake with good reproduction, good, good populations, all that stuff you can find out, you know, it's been talked about a lot. I know through, you know, our stocking numbers or just, uh, you know, looking up the research on the lakes themselves, the classification, there's a pamphlet out there that lists a lot of that stuff, whether or not the lake is a, um, you know, trophy fishery, numbers fishery, natural sustaining, re relying on stocking, so on and so forth. Um, and then the other part of that correlation is that, um, that 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 equation is, you know, time in the water. You know, so going out there, driving around the lake for a couple hours, figuring out what looks good, what you think looks good. I mean, and that's pretty easy. Look at the map, find the big dominant weed point, find maybe a you know a rock point or something like that or something with a lot of rubble and wood on it if it's not uh, a lake that has a lot of weeds find stuff like that where you've got the obvious spots as you're driving around looking at stuff and then you know devote at least for like say a 300 acre lake devote a good two and a half hours to driving around two two and a half hours for the for the average guy driving around looking at stuff gps a little bit kind of figure out where the edges are and then you know spend three hours fishing it after that you know make a half day out of it and that's a good way to learn a lake, especially if you can get out there, you know, moons at seven o'clock, get out there at two, three o'clock, drive around for an hour or two, figure some stuff out and then go, you know, hit your moon phase or before storm or what have you. But try to isolate a feeding window, get on the water, drive around, figure out what looks good, get that stuff into a fishable program, come up with a game plan and attack it during what you can, you know, ascertain as a prime feeding window. And that's that's musky fishing 101, but that's definitely the key. And then keep records of it. I don't keep super... I don't keep super detailed journals, but I make, I make footnotes. I used to do it, you know, a long time ago, but the amount that I fish, it's just, I just can't, I just can't do it. I just don't have time and I get behind on it and then it's no fun. But I, uh, I try to keep at least a, a loose running log of, you know, where I caught fish, what I caught them on or how many we lost or, you know, other, other small notes. And then when I come across like a super aha moment where it's like, Okay, this has happened this year, the next year, the next year, stuff where you find these things where it crosses the, you know, from season to season, it's always seems to be the pattern. That's the kind of stuff that you really add to the little black book. Um, really write that stuff down, commit it to memory, whatever you have to do. And that's the kind of stuff that you, those are the nuggets you keep that keeps you ahead of the game because the, the, the time it took you to figure that out is unless you straight up tell somebody about it and, and, and really lay it out for somebody else, there's pretty much no way anybody else is going to figure out those you know, and I'm talking even down to like the area of a lake or the, a couple of spots on a certain lake that are always good at a certain time of year or after certain weather events or, you know, you talk about the very specifics, but where it's like automatic, you know, those, those hundred percenters, man. And when you, when you figure that stuff out and string enough of them together, 
that's where that's where you can really get out and expect to catch fish and you know all reasonable circumstances or at least get your shots at them catching muskies is a little different than hooking muskies but um so yeah that's i mean that's the long and the short of it i guess one so one of the takeaways i'll take from that to the, for the listeners would be basically what you're saying is if you're on a water if you're on a body of water say it's tops out at 20 feet deep darker stained water um no current whatever and you're struggling and you maybe go to the next lake and it's similar to that you're and you struggle there too you maybe want to start to look at deeper clearer you know something completely different just lake makeup yeah. wise not necessarily yeah. you know just switching a lake to switch a lake you're looking to switch a, a system or a system type or whatever to try to you know, spur some activity absolutely yeah and that's the same thing that we you know again another one of those pages you can take from either say an early season walleye lake or or a steelhead type of bite where it's hey you know for steelhead this river's already beat they're done the pod came up they spawned their stragglers coming in hit somewhere that hasn't hasn't had the megapod show up yet for walleyes it might be late they you know early in the season you're talking about more for a spawning related thing these types of things like that spawning related that's another thing that I'd like to talk about it that because it, it's hard to pin down. It's hard to, it's hard to say it. It's hard to put it into words to like actually talk about what I mean for it. But what I'm trying to get at is like, there's these certain events over the course of a year that happen in a system, you know, you've got the spawn is the obvious one, but there's ones where feeding patterns switch for, you could even say unknown reasons. It's not unknown. It's a, it's a seasonally predictable pattern, but they do change. It's not as obvious as something like all the fish come up and spawn. Obviously that's a major life event from them for them. That's something that's going to be very identifiable. There's just a time like when that big bait switch flips or when that big bucktail bite, you know, that switch flips. If you can be on those waters that are very conducive to your approach at those times, that's key. Now you have to figure out on your own when those times occur, but that's where keeping track of that stuff and, and again, switching up where, hey, dark stained water, we're struggling. Next lake's dark stained water, we're struggling. Go to something with a 12-foot weed line in clear water or go to something with a 9 or 10-foot weed line in, in a heavy green algae bloom. You know, something like that that are polar opposites from what you're at. And a lot of times here, you might be just driving a mile or two down the road or quite literally across the road in some cases. And then try your try your strategy there, see how it works. Yeah, in that instance, I sort of wanted to try to relate that for a listener that wouldn't necessarily be in northern Wisconsin. If you're in Minnesota or wherever, is if you have other lake options near you, maybe give those a shot, you know, if they're different from what what you'd already be fishing. Or even other ends of big systems. You know, if you're on something like a vermilion or, a, you know, a, or something like that, I say vermilion because it's one of the only ones I've fished with any amount of time over there. But sometimes one end can be on, the other end can be off. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, that's that's what I was talking about earlier during a tournament time frame. You know, I mean, rocks, weeds, sand. I mean, it, there's so many different factors. Maybe it's wind driven. You know, maybe there's a wind driven uh, mud line um, that kind of dirties your. Um, there's so many factors, and and I think you've touched on a bunch of them, Jeff. But uh, yeah, change things up is the key to this whole deal. Yes. Yes. And and pay attention, you know, listen, pay attention to what you find when you change things, you know what I mean? Because there's no sense in banging. The, the other thing, though, too, I would encourage people, like, it, once you do get that confidence in water, because there's definitely days where it's just going to be a narrow window. So you have to have that little bit of a, you know, voice in the back of your head saying, well, you know, is this really you know, the best time to be scouting a new water? You know, not that there's ever a bad time to be out looking, but you can't immediately get discouraged when you go there and don't have success. I don't think that's really ingrained in many musky fishermen because most of us are gluttons for punishment. But if you go out there, you know, say there's three days of storms, great weather, everything's going, fish are hot, getting pounded. I mean, there's there's pictures popping up all over your social media. Everybody's catching fish. And you don't get out there until a day or two after all that. And that's going to be your first time on the lake. You drive around it, skies are blue and clear. You know, and everything just kind of seems to have laid down environmentally and bite wise. Like you can't be super upset with yourself that you didn't do well. You know what I mean? You just got to still put in that time and knowledge and learn it. So there's there's definitely that to be considered as well. There's no doubt. I mean, chasing a bite never seems to work that well. You know? <laughs> no. I mean, if I told you about a bite today, it doesn't mean you're going to go out there and get them tomorrow. You know? So No. 
And I would agree. And, and again, look at, you know, I, I bring that all right back to the example where we had that crazy night during league where just the fish just seemed to be all over the place and going nuts. And, you know, going back there quite literally, you know, 12 hours or less, not even, I mean, we were off the water at eight fifty or nine o'clock and I was back in the water with customers at seven 30 on that same body of water and the fish were done. They were done. You know, I mean, they, they, they were, they're full that, that, that bite happened. They were done. I mean, an extreme example, but you know, I could have told everybody, you know, Hey, you guys got to get down there today. This is going hot and heavy. And you'd show up and you go, oh, this guy's a liar. You know, <laughs> Uh, there's no doubt about that, Jeff. So if there was one reason why somebody should hire you, why is that, Jeff? Um, I would say the last reason or one of the reasons lower on the totem pole is to actually catch a fish. I, I think that's the wrong reason to necessarily go with a guide. Um, go out and try to learn. And that's, you know, speaking on behalf of somebody who's trying to become a musky fisherman, not just somebody who wants to go catch a musky. If that's all you want to do is, hey, man, I've always wanted to catch a musky. I just want to try it out. I'm not going to go buy a boat. I'm not going to go buy thousands of dollars in gear and rods. I just want to go catch a fish. Then, okay, then the reason to come with a guy is certainly catch a fish. But come out to, to just see how somebody else does it. I uh, Honestly, these last couple of years, I've started doing a bit more traveling than that and, and getting to share a boat with some other really good anglers. Um, you know, went over to St. Clair this year, went out and went up and fished uh, – on Lake of the Woods uh, this year and last year, hopped up to Eagle um, for just a brief couple of days. And I haven't spent any, you know, large amounts of time on either of those bodies of water, fished a little bit on Green Bay too. And some of the guys I've gotten to share the boat with too. It's always cool to see how somebody else does it, especially if it's somebody else that, um, you know, is, is really well known for production in that area. And just to see how their stuff varies, even, even like I said, from somebody that's out a lot like myself, um, you can always learn something. Yeah, I and, would agree. Hiring a guy is a great, a great way to do it. Yeah, I think some of the biggest advantages, you know, going with a guide, the guide's on the water every day. And, um, you know, for the weekend warrior, they're coming up on a Friday night. They pound it out. You know, they work their butts off Friday and Saturday, and they finally maybe start putting together something, and they're gone Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. Um, you know, we have big advantages, there's no doubt, being on the water every day. Um, yep. we put the pattern together, fish change, we're still kind of stuck to them doing the change with them. And, uh, I think, uh, that thing, but there's so many other components to being a guide and, um, I, I, that's, you kind of touched on it. I mean, what is it that you're hiring the guide for, you know, just your first fish? Are you looking for that special big fish? And most of your guides sure. can offer that. And I think you should share with those guides what it is you're actually looking for in that day you know it's a great that's a great way to put it brad i i would also add to that for anybody looking to hire guides don't oversell your abilities um you know if you are green and you really don't know don't be afraid to say that i i found myself in a number of situations where i i think people get themselves in a way like for up here they think they're you know if you think you're gonna hire somebody like myself or, or probably any of the guides up here really and go to some you know, top secret lake that you've never, that nobody knows about. It's not going to happen. Everybody know. I mean, you might not know about it, but I mean, in terms of going to water that doesn't get fished or this or that, it, it doesn't really exist up here. It might even be just one dude that fishes it five nights a week because it's his favorite lake and he's the only guy that lives on it. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it, the key is to learn how to, how to catch the fish. Not, it's not about finding places where they're just dumber. It can be to a point, but the bottom line is most of our waters up here get at least enough pressure that these fish have at least seen baits before. It's not like you're going to go be dropped in the middle of wilderness and cast and they bite on every cast. It just doesn't happen. Um, so the guide is, like you said, putting together that pattern is huge, but also just getting that confidence in fishing water that also receives pressure, I think, is is very big for people. Like I can't tell you how many people – when I go back through a spot that we've already fished, like I can tell that they are not excited to fish it because we've already fished this, even if it was four hours ago, you know, like they're just, oh, we already fished this spot. You can kind of tell a lot of people, not a lot, but some people get that. And that's the wrong way to think about things. Another thing that you learn in tournaments, you, I've literally pounded fish in people's boat wake and I've had it done to me as well. Like, you know, fishing a cast length away or they come in behind you and they make one cast and they drill one. I can't tell you how many times that has happened. Um, so it, it's to see it in practice though, by being with somebody like yourself or me or somebody that's in the water a lot is 
it's a big confidence boost and it can put a lot of big fish in your boat and a lot more muskies if you if you can fish with that kind of confidence i was just going to reiterate you know confidence is a huge part of this game and um you know if you if you don't believe you might as well just hang it out so that that's all i was going to say jeff yeah, no, that's spot on, man. You gotta, you gotta learn to love the process. Learn to love being out there, tro- throwing baits, shooting the breeze. The rest of it comes, man. The rest of it comes, and you, you'll put it together sooner or later. And uh, but being out with a guide, like you said, I mean, you know, go out and have a good time, man. You're gonna learn something. I, I would go, you know, on the, coming from, you know, going to a new body of water in particular, like traveling a long ways away. I have no problem, you know, especially if it's somebody new, it's even better. But no problem hopping in a boat with somebody else, paying them for their time. I mean, especially if they're a well-known guide, I don't, I'm not there to, you know, take advantage of, of their generosity or whatever. You're taking a day off of work, no different than, you know, I, I know what it's like to be booked and I know what it's like to donate that time. And, you know, and if I'd be willing to do that, I would, I would hope, hopefully, you know, the average working day guy would be willing to do the same thing. I mean, it's, there's a tremendous wealth of knowledge you're missing out on if you've never hired a guide, I would highly recommend it, whether it's here or anywhere. Well, Jeff, you must have a few lakes up there with dumb muskies because obviously I was able to catch one with you, so you had to have been able to find a couple of dumb ones somewhere. Well, I just had that hot team rhino custom color going, that's all. That must be it. I mean, I mean those, colors, those colors are pretty good, and they will save a day once in a while, but you know what? In order for me to catch muskies, I always need to find dumb ones. Yeah, well, we always hope to see find that dumb one, Jeff. I think that's the that's the dragon we're all chasing. I think that's good. I've been able to find like three dumb ones this year, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Since the time is getting away from us a little bit, let's. Um, so we had a few we had a few questions on our on our Backlash Podcast Facebook page. Let me let me read off a couple questions, Jeff, and we'll um, we'll kind of get into a few of them. First off, let's let's read this one here from Jordan Weeks. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> he wants to know what waist size you have. He's betting that it's a four T. <laughs> uh, thirty-two. I wear a thirty-two, thirty-four, uh, the same that I wore when I was in high school. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> we got one. We got one other question. I know Brad doesn't necessarily want me to ask it, but so we have a we have a listener who apparently has a has a man crush on Pete Mena because he keeps talking about him. So he wants to know if you know Pete Mena and if you can get him on our podcast. <laughs> I have met Pete. Uh, we did two shows with Gillespie way back with Rob Mantai doing some ice fishing. Um, but I don't think I can get him on your podcast. I could ask him, but I don't know him personally outside of those two. Well, I guess I other places there I bumped into him. But I do not. Uh, don't sit down for beers with Pete on a regular basis. I don't think I'm your guy for that. All right. Well, Brad, we'll have to try to get our people, contact his people, and see if we can work on some sort of con- uh, contractual agreement to make that happen for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's been on you a bunch. No doubt about that. It's pretty funny. Yes, it is pretty funny. So that's why I had to bring it up on the podcast to know that we actually do pay attention to your comments that you make on our stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Getting back to a serious question, um, we had a we had a, a listener ask um, if you could fish one color for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? And don't say, don't say black. Don't say black. Oh, well, why not black? Because <laughs> I don't, I'm into custom colors. That's kind of my whole thing with this company. Oh, yeah. Uh, how about all white? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's a good, that's a good question. One color for everything. I would say something in that, um, either like a, I mean, for everywhere, all across the board. I mean, probably like a yellow belly perch kind of deal, something like that. If I had to pick something that wasn't white, brown, black, something that's more of an, I mean, perch is a good one. Um, but anything that's a natural color, I mean, I I really do think custom colors and, and, and color can matter to a very high degree in some cases. Um, but the biggest thing is having the right, the right presentation and the right, it's not always... I don't want to say color is not important because it absolutely is. But if you're going for like that general ballpark, sometimes just having something with that contrast where you've got a dark, a light and a bright, or, you know, that would be the kind of thing you're looking for. And like I said, that perch really meets that demand with like a black top yellow, which can be your bright. And then something like a green or a white on the belly or a lime color on the belly, like on that, on that bulldog and, um, or that you have there that, that's the kind of the color I'm thinking of, but something that yellow belly or like green, black, yellow, something along those lines, I guess. All right. Yeah. Kind of what I've always told people, you know, they come in our booth at the shows and 
you know, it depends on what you're buying. You're buying two baits, you're buying four baits. What I would say yes. is it's something natural, something bright. And yes, you, you pretty much got your bases covered. So if you're buying four baits, get two natural and get two bright. And and, um, and kind of get one that meets both, you know, that orange, right. you know, black and orange is a classic example, right? You got orange blades and a black skirt, most common color in musky fishing, but you've got a mix of natural and bright. There's no doubt. I mean, I, that's that's really, truly. I mean, then you get the bases covered. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So then, uh, Jeff, in three minutes or less, can you give me fish movement throughout the season? Because um, this question right here could get pretty long-winded. Yeah, weird. I'm not known for that. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I've noticed that um, you're a very shy guy. Fish, fish movement throughout the season, three minutes or less. Shallow weeds with ice, then deep, then shallow, then deep again, some for half the population, then back shallow, then kind of all over, <laughs> and then shallow for a little bit, and then real deep, and then all over again. <laughs> Does that work? I mean, it worked, uh, that definitely qualified for three minutes or less. I think these guys are going to be like, oh, what are we doing now? But that'll be your pre-ice out through spawn through post-spawn through weed developed and back on the weed lines and then your open water summer and then you got your it depends on the area it depends on the lake man there's lakes where there's of course going to be the the thing is to try not to burden yourself with what they're doing all over the place all the time if you've got a handful of lakes that you really like to fish figure out what those fish are doing that's the bigger issue instead of worrying about you know oh i heard about you know, this open water bank well you know not every lake has a great open water or at least a targetable castable open water bite can you get them doing it yes but is it necessarily the best option for a lake with that's very rich in structure and has great deep cabbage and all the other things that are great attributes of a musky lake it might not be because sometimes those fish really are just up there and they're just not moving and that's honestly a lot of times that's the case but again seasonally you'll find them using different patterns but yeah, that's a long, that's a long question. Is there another one that, isn't there a couple that tie in with that? Something narrow down a little bit more specific. Isn't there one that's kind of. Yeah, you, you could talk there. about weather. That that would help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weather, weather is still a big, in my opinion, the number one component to muskies, you know, and it I really mean, it, you could talk for hours on that topic. There's no doubt. I mean, it, it's Absolutely. a tough one to answer for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, when you tie, okay, so like weather and fish movement combined, um, you know, for example, we just go in the summer because like the spawn and stuff like that, that first couple weeks of season, depending on how everything shapes up leading up to it, which there again, weather being the absolute biggest driving factor there, influencing the spawn, influencing what sets the pace for the entire year. Um, I would say that is one thing too to consider, and I won't go into it too much because I know it'll get long too, but the how, how a year sets up and how those fish patterns and their movement relates is all in many cases, I think predicated on how the spawn goes for them. And and then of course you get the, the weather that comes in and how quickly those weeds develop and how well those weeds develop. And the other thing you'll find with those lakes is sometimes you're just going to find lakes that are just off for a year. I had a good example of one this year that man, I, it was a good lake solid producer for me for a long time. And I don't know why it dried up, but they just seem to have dried up. It's like the fish just went down a black hole, never came back. Maybe somebody's been out there fishing it a real lot, and those fish have just gotten more shy, or you know, more bait shy. But I, you think you'd still be seeing them, but we didn't. And then a year goes by, went back out there this year after really not touching it for you know most of the season, kind of waited till everything set up, and they were right where they're supposed to be again. But again, under good circumstances, went out there. And so sometimes that switch just flips too. And those fish just aren't where they should be. Or, or if they are there, maybe they want something different than what you're throwing or they're at the wrong time. But, you know, the weather for summer, the good, good, good rule of thumb is you've got something, you know, cloudy, a cool down, um, you know, rain, anything like that. Typically, that's when your, your bucktail bite can be really good. Your topwater bite can be really good. Certainly still a jerk bait or rubber or any of that other stuff can all be great. But those are the times when those baits can really, really shine, at least up here. And I would say that's more true on the darker, tingy, stained, or algae bloom waters as much or more so than anywhere else, provided that they have good weed growth as well. And then you've got the opposite of that, which is your high skies and, and sun and post-frontal and then those fish, a lot of times they're still, I think, in the same places. In fact, I can prove it because I see them in my imaging and stuff. 
they do one of two things, which is kind of both options, that they either leave or they stay. But if they, they don't seem to stay in between is, is maybe a good way to put it. They either stay way nestled up in that cover, it seems, or they back off a cast length and a half or two cast lengths or a little bit more off the break. I'm seeing them out on the main lake side in my imaging. Casting that, so, so in those days, casting those edges as one tri- traditionally would, you know, you're two-thirds of a cast length off the weed line, casting up to the weeds and bringing it back. A lot of times you, you might still get a couple fish to go that way, but you're better off to go in after them with, say, big rubber or jerk baits or downsized blades and go into that heavy cover and try to weed them out of there versus waiting for them on the edge where it's easier to work a bait and in more predictable ambush site because they're not necessarily set up to feed. The other fish, which I don't know if it's the ones that are just full or decide to leave or what it is, and I'm sure it's a mix of many factors, if not all of those, but they will slide off of the break and they'll go all deeper. And those are the fish that you're seeing out on the imaging that are, you know, basically be casting towards shore or casting off the other side of the boat. These are the fish you'd be casting off the other side of the boat at. So they will slide out there. And those fish are also still targetable. We caught one. We had a really good one the other day. We were going through in a kind of a similar situation. And I was like, oh, it's like 26 feet that way. Kind of just pointed there. Guy casted a Medusa, gave it two rips, boom, caught the fish. It was a 35 incher, nothing crazy big. But bottom line is saw the fish, cast it over there, sniped him. You know, we got him. Um, but that was a fish that was sitting just off the break. I mean, it was clearly still a hungry fish, even though it had a real full belly, but it was just a fish that had slidden off the break as the conditions became less favorable. Or, well, I guess, who knows, maybe it's not the whole time, but it's what you see in those migrations because I had been on that lake recently. And before that, there were no fish out deep by my imaging. I didn't see any fish out deep. Everything seemed to be up in the weeds and moving on those edges when pr- conditions were prime. When conditions were subprime, they were buried up in the cover or way off the break. And I could see that with electronics. Longer than three minutes, but that's a, a good rule of thumb, at least for our area. I mean, they're going to do different things, different places. But up here, that's a pretty good pretty good starting point for sure. Now you just have to catch them. But. So what, what electronics? I mean, i just curious because we've had so much talk about side imaging this year. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, side imaging. I do actually have a panoptics set up, um, but I've got it more for ice fishing than anything. Still working on fine-tuning that for the boat, but it's pretty cool to play with in the boat for sure. Um, but the side imaging is my biggest tool that I've used for sure at this time. I, uh, the, I run a, a hummingbird, hummingbird helix, helix, I have two helix tens, big imaging. Um, uh, I would say though on that one, and I don't know, I had somebody kind of comment on one of my posts when I had a fish following around in the figure eight on it. And he's, you know, are, aren't you aware that you're not in mega imaging mode? And I, you know, there are multiple settings for a reason, too. I mean, you know, like you don't need to always be a mega image. There is a medium for a reason. I actually kind of like it for picking up fish and weeds. I just feel like I can see them better. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm used to my old imaging. I don't know. But I could I could see them in the weeds very well with that. And I do bounce between both the mega setting and I think it's 850 kilohertz setting um, for tight quarters. But for that, if you do go down to the lower, what I will I'll do is a lot of times just sign it in. Normally you run it in like that 40 to 60 foot um for a distance on either side and that's still what you're doing but I'll, you can adjust the contrast and the sensitivity a little bit to play with it a little bit and, and it all depends how it's positioned on your boat again you could talk for hours about it i'm sure you guys have heard enough about it but that is one thing i would say to consider don't 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 be afraid to play with it especially once you're very aware of what you have in your lake if you know if you know the structure that's there and what should be there and then you're seeing shadows that aren't normally there while well, there's something you know Try and play with your imaging a little bit more to see if you can can get better better dial on what's there and where they are because it's probably muskies or fish of some sort. But if they're big, they're probably muskies. Brad, you just wanted to bring all that back into side imaging so we could talk about a hummingbird again, didn't you? No, I, I was just curious because I wasn't a hundred percent sure where Jeff was on that. Um, sure, and and I think it's always interesting. I mean, I always talk to everybody about this stuff. Um, the panoptic thing is really cool. I, it is cool, man. And um, I definitely, I mean, in the ice fishing world, I can see the advantage. And, and it's interesting. You know, I mean, Jason Quintano and, and I have talked quite a bit about it. He's using it while he's trolling and he's watching his crankbaits. He knows if he's having a follow, you know. Yep. So Absolutely. There's, uh, there's uses for every tool. There's no doubt. Uh, yeah, the key is just having it set up right, and that's a. It's all. It's not always easy in every boat and, and for every person, you know. Hands down, I think the biggest key to all of it, no matter what you choose to use, is learning it, 
and understanding what you're actually looking at. Once you have that dialed in, I mean, the, the sky's the limit. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, I think, you know, the being around before this stuff was around, you know, yourself as well, I know you have that advantage of being able to find fish without all that stuff. So if you can find them without that, having that stuff at your disposal is just so nice. <laughs> it's just so great. I can't argue any of that. Uh-huh. Oh. Even just something like spot lock, how much does that just make you smile when you have a fish in the net? Oh, spot lock. You know, yep. I mean, just just simple stuff. Oh, yeah, we got to fix the backlash. Spot lock. Oh, I've got soccer in. Spot lock. It's just, oh, it's just so great. It truly is. It's amazing, actually. But people that have just started, you know, 10 years from now, everybody go, wait, this wasn't always a thing? You know, it's just crazy. We, crazy. we had orlocks. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did a lot of fishing out of a rowboat, man. Like I said, after dark, as you're all just out there in the rowboat, casting around, kind of, I caught tons of muskies out of a rowboat. It's just like <laughs> around in my dad's yeah. boat, you know, no no electronics. Basically, tell depth when I wanted to work, and that was about it. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I had a guy one time tell me that I was guiding. He said, "What? But I can't do what you can do." And I go, "Why is that?" And he goes, "Well, I don't have this fancy boat like you." And I said, "Well." Are you bailing water? And he said, no. I said, no. you got a good enough boat. It isn't mm-hmm. about the boat, you know? No, definitely it's about not. time on the water, like you said, and paying attention to detail. And I think that's probably what we pulled the most from you tonight, Jeff. I, and, and it's very valid points. There's no doubt about it. And I think I, I appreciate what you what you offered. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on in that. You know, to, to your point on the boat, man, I, I'd tell anybody straight up, though, I mean, the one thing you want to do to upgrade your vessel, even if it's just the most basic of basic of basic, just put good electronics on it, man. It's, it's such a game changer. You don't need it, but it helps. Oh, hands down. Hands down. You, know, you can put it on a, a $500 boat. Give me my electronics in a $500 boat. We'll still pound fish, you know, or, or without it, too. That's fine. But I'm saying that, you know what I mean? It increases your lethality greatly to have it and you don't need to have everything else that goes with that if you can only have one thing it's exactly what i've always said that musky fishing is a puzzle and you know whatever pieces you can put together to benefit your time on the water and electronics are a big part of that key so yeah it'd be foolish not to use them you know and down well brad should we uh should we put the nightcap on this one you know, it'd be good. Um, I don't want to put Jeff on the spot, but if you had one single tip that you would like to share with our listeners, that'd be awesome if you had one, Jeff. Oh, man. I don't know. We covered a lot of good stuff there. One tip. Like I said, I the biggest thing, I mean, and I, I've talked about it in a lot of seminars. I've talked about it, you know, with a lot of people on my boat. And, and Jeff and I talked about when he came and fished here. I mean, just don't be afraid to go and, and explore. Like, especially if you're really struggling, man. Sometimes sometimes it, you might not even be doing the wrong thing, quote unquote. You just might not be on the right water. You know, sometimes like, well, I was throwing that bait and I didn't catch any. Well, you know, and you don't know until you go. I, I mean, you don't want to get too crazy with it and never spend any time fishing, but expand your empire man expand your empire that's what you got to do you got to get out there and the more lakes you learn the more time you put in learning them even if you end up not going back to them a lot and this you know holds true also for travel you know just going from minnesota to wisconsin to canada whatever put in that time and travel and learn different bites and different techniques and, and different types of water and then when you go back to to the same old same old back home or you go back to your old stomping grounds you're going to be amazed at how much different it looks to you i uh I can't stress that enough. Like going back and looking at what I thought I knew, you know, as a kid, like, oh, I knew there's weeds here and I casted my baits here all the time because this is where I caught a musky once. And, you know, you kind of, oh, I caught another one there. And I, but to go back in and look at it with my eyes now, you know, some 15, 20 years later is pretty cool, you know. And that's something that I think a lot of people can benefit from if they if they just go out and expand their horizons in that same way. They'll be very happy they did. Whether their success rates immediately improve or not, long term, they absolutely will. I would totally agree with that, Jeff. I think that that's valid. Um, you know, it's all about how you approach lake and uh, approach each individual spot as well. And just because a fish didn't eat at this direction of casting 
maybe it does on a different direction. You know, maybe it's casting into the wind. Maybe it's approaching a point at a different angle. Um, so, you know, the, the, like you said, experience definitely helps. And I think that's a great way to put it. So I think we're on track. Yeah. Well, What's up, boys? Well, Jeff, why don't you, uh, why don't you mention again how people can get in touch with you or find you, check out your your awesome fish that you caught. We'll probably have it as the uh, as our little social media banner for trying to spread the word about this episode anyways. But why don't you talk about yourself again for a minute? Yeah, sure, right on. So, yeah, my name is Jeff Vandermortal. I am based in northern Wisconsin, um, Minocqua specifically, and I service all of Vilas, Oneida, Iron, and Price counties. And you can find me on social media at Jeff Vandermortal on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me on my website at wisconsinmuskyfishingguide.com or wisconsinduckhunts.com. And, yeah, you can find me anywhere through there. And my number's on all that stuff, 920-639-6286. You can call or text there if you're looking to get a hold of me that way. Perfect. So, Brad, why don't you talk about Muskie Mayhem Tackle for a second? Well, it's pretty easy to get a hold of us. Um, you can email us at muskymahemtackle.com or you can check us out on Facebook or Instagram. And love to hear from you. Love to see your pictures of fish and so on and so forth. Um, any interest in our baits, um, definitely check us out and shoot us an email. And if you're looking to get in touch with Backlash Podcast, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email us backlashpodcast at gmail.com. I will I will preface it by saying if we don't answer your email immediately, um, we're not trying to ignore you. We're just we do have businesses we need to run on top of running the podcast. So sometimes answering the questions isn't answering emails on backlash isn't always our highest priority. And I apologize for that, but I still need to run my business, take care of my kids and run my other business. So I guess <laughs> I do apologize for that. But um if you want to get in touch with Team Rhino Outdoors you can check us out at teamrhinooutdoors.com. Again, we're a custom lure retailer. We carry most of the major manufacturers in the muskie world. We carry a lot of the smaller off-the-wall, you know, uh, bait makers too. So if you want, check us out. Check out our website. I think that's about it. Jeff, thanks for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. Obviously, there's so much more we could talk to you about, and we uh, we have all winter and a whole bunch more podcasts to do this winter. So we'll definitely consider looking you up again. Thanks for coming out. And Brad... Tell Carrie she better she better get back on here. We're gonna have to fire her, take her salary away because this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's the problem, Jeff. Maybe it's that salary. That must have been it. <laughs> uh, I will scold her tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening. You guys have a good night. <laughs>